Welcome to the Inspiro Podcast, the podcast exploring personal growth, leadership, strategy, communication, and fulfillment. We are your hosts, Jason Luchtefeld and Bill Woodburn. I'm here as a dentist transitioning into a career to help facilitate individuals and their organizations towards a more fulfilling future. Hi there, I'm Bill Woodburn, and I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist in Austin, Texas. I'm fascinated by the way people come together to solve problems, whether that's couples or families, dental practices or organizations. We're going to be exploring a lot of topics, and for us to be able to be free to do that, I have to let you know that this is not intended to be dental advice or counseling advice. In our next communication failure, we uh, we could go many directions with this, Bill. I think we both probably see some unique things in where communication goes awry. And I'm going to throw one out, and that is with our attention. And I think that uh, a key part of communication is paying close attention to what the other person is saying. And for a variety of reasons, especially these days, attention is short-lived. For me, I see it, uh, I can see it with patience when I start talking about something and I start to see their eyes drift off and they start looking around and it's pretty telling that I've lost them. And usually that's because I've gone into dental jargon instead of uh, normal person jargon. But I think it can happen with team members. It can happen. I'm sure you see it with couples and families and things like that. But um, I think from to start with, I'd love to know from you your opinion on attention's role in communication. And then maybe we can talk about some things to help us maintain attention either of, with ourselves or with who we're talking to. Wonderful. I, you know, I think you put your finger on such a basic thing that is often overlooked. We, we go into more, you know, exotic forms of communication and how to improve it. Uh, I think we need to, we need to stay a little bit with just the idea of paying attention. So I just got back from Los Angeles. So I was flying in a couple through a couple of airports and I noticed how going to the airport, I was I was just awash in a sea of things and people trying to get my attention. Uh, every part of the airport had posters and animated and video and audio and the and the sweet lady telling me not to leave my bag with strangers or you know, can I have your attention, please? It's like, I feel like saying, no, you can't, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm done. I've been, been doing this a couple of hours. I've, I've, my attention is sort of like, uh-uh, it's mine. You can't have it. Um, I see a lot of people coming in from the world into my office, breathe a big sigh of relief because at least for a moment, no one's trying to get their attention. I think we also... Uh, there's a kind of an undercurrent of irritation, maybe even anger with the idea of, of how much our attention is demanded sometimes uh, by our phones, our TVs, our, you know, 
walking down the street. It's just, no, you must pay attention. You must pay attention now, and you must pay attention to me, not that other guy over there. Um, so I think there's some real exhaustion sometimes when people show up, and they're maybe the best tool in the world trying to learn something, but they're just, their attention muscles are just exhausted. Plus, I think we're also training people to guard their attentions more. It used to be, and I'm going to sound like an old guy, it used to be that I didn't feel like I had to, I wasn't in such a, a strenuous competition for my attention. There weren't as many ways. And so I didn't have to guard myself. Um, I didn't have to decide every moment what I was going to pay attention to. I could put it on cruise control. And now, you know, I've, I've, I've had to learn how to remove my attention from things that I don't want to pay attention to or need to be paying attention to something else. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, no, people are just getting sloppy in their attention. No, I actually, I think what's happening is we're getting more deliberate. Uh, no, I'm going to pay attention to this now. But sometimes... You know, if we're trying to get someone's attention, we lose. No, I'd rather pay attention to my phone. Uh, it's a competition. And sometimes we lose that competition. That is a major problem these days. The phone sitting right there. You know, the majority of our our conversation thus far in this podcast has been about one-on-one -on -one conversations. How do we have a conversation with the human next to us or a team member or a patient? And we haven't included the fact that there's a third entity oftentimes in that room or space with us, and that is the phone. I think one thing that I've found is if I want to have a real connected conversation with somebody, I have to put the phone away. It's way too easy to be while the other person's talking to grab a quick uh, look down and see what my notifications look like. <laughs> and that right there, you know, we don't multitask well. Uh, the, I think now they even say it's completely a myth that you're not multitasking. You're just task switching. <laughs> and so if that would be my first tip in this particular episode for people is if you want to Make sure that you're having a real conversation that stick your phone in a box, in a drawer, uh, turn it upside down so that notifications are off and not visible, something to get it out of the way. I made a mistake one time in a workshop. This was years ago. Um, I was with a bunch of executives at a corporation. And for the workshop, I asked them to turn off their cell phones. Simple request. We're doing things up here. It'll require your participation. I'm very interested in your thoughts. Please turn off your cell phones. Most of them did it. Some of them sort of didn't Act, exactly. Acted like they were doing it. Acted like <laughs> But I could feel in the next few seconds, the tension in the room rise. What was happening on the phone that you, that you were not privy to now? That you, that, you, that you didn't, I mean, you might miss a notification, you might miss something, you know, and and, and th there are a couple of people that I swear were on the verge of a panic attack. I thought, all I did was ask you to, I mean, you aren't really going to be on your cell phone during the workshop anyway. 
but just having it off seemed to be a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so that let me know the depth of, of this attachment. It's like, wait a minute, this is this is more than a communication device. This is a protective device or a, a warning device or a, something. It, it more than just like, hey, turn off the TV, let's have a talk. You can do that with TV. It's much harder to ask people to do that with their cell phone. Mm -hmm. You know, this is maybe unrelated, but it reminds me of a story from when I was a kid. I was deathly afraid of getting lost as a kid. So if we would travel, I would memorize the map of the place we were going to so mm -hmm. that I could help my parents navigate mm -hmm. because I did not want to get lost. So now the phone is that map at a glance. And that is a tremendous security uh, device at times. But what I found, it's gone too far. I'll go trail running across the street from my house. It's bounded by four roads. I can't get lost. And yet I still am adverse to taking a trail that I haven't taken before because I'm not exactly sure where it's going to take me. I thought about that yesterday, actually, and I thought how silly that is that I'm not going to get lost, yet I'm still, I don't want to take that left because I've never taken that left and I don't know where it goes. And so I'm going to keep on this trail that I know where it's going. We'll try to link that back to your executives that were in that room that are connected to their devices, that it's the security blanket of something for them, yeah. whether it's directions or contact with the employees or notifications about the latest news that's going on that they want to be tracking, whatever it may be. But I think you're right. It performs a, a role as a, a security blanket for us that we get scared when it's gone. Yeah. That, that sense that we will miss something. Yeah. And, and that that will be a threat somehow that we'll miss something. Right. That we won't know what we should know. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, it also means, you know, with particularly with cell phones, is we can war be warned about things globally. So there's never a shortage of things <clears throat> that sound like they could be a threat that we really ought to know about. Um, right. I used to actually see stuff on my phone and want to research it, but now it's like I don't, I don't have enough life left to research everything that comes into my phone in a day. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah that that right there would be a whole other episode of. <laughs> Uh, epistemology, I think is the right word, that we, we now have a problem of epistemology because we don't know the sources of the things that we're reading as well as we may be used to. And mm -hmm. that creates a whole nother uh, ball to unravel. But I wanted to touch on one of the things you said in your description there, and that was the idea of mindfulness, or we could even call it mindful listening or mindful conversation. And to me, that just means that we make a commitment to be present in that moment with that person or people in that conversation. And to me, that is a intentional attention to what's happening. Yes. And I see it as a, something of a two-part process that, uh, we we are mindful of the moment and and paying attention to what's going on which lets us make 
an intentional action later. Without the mindfulness of what's going on now, we're not actually making an intentional action later because we don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so those, if, if you want intentional actions that head toward goals that might be valuable to you, it actually starts with some form of being here now. I think that's a book title. <laughs> that is a book title. It's an old book title I read many years ago. Uh, it's also something that uh, a lot of dentists and practice owners tell me they want from their patients and they want from their team. Again, intentional action, intentional decisions, well-thought-out decisions. And what you and I are talking about is to get that, you have to back them up into mindful of the moment. And if if people are not connected to the moment, then what you're asking for in this sort of please be careful, please be follow procedure accurately uh, for patients, please give me your considered decision about this treatment, um, it, it, it falls by the wayside. We, we, we get assent or we get actions, but they're not actually intentional, deliberate, committed actions. They're just, uh, it was the next thing to say. Uh, and that leads to uh, practice owners who are infuriated because the team doesn't seem to be moving in the right direction or dentists that are infuriated because they agreed to all this treatment why aren't they showing up for it? Mm. Um, I thought I had an agreement with them. Well, but did you did you have an intentional, well-thought-out agreement? Or did you just have a, this is the point where I'm supposed to agree, so I'll agree. But I, I haven't really been in this moment. So I'm only agreeing to my sort of partial understanding of partial information. Okay, that is interesting. And how... Let's see, that ties into the idea of, um, I think it's compliance versus adherence. Compliance, you can correct me here if I'm wrong. Compliance means you gave instructions, the patient followed them. Yes, yes. Adherence means that you had a mutual agreement that the patient adhered to which is more of a uh, collaborative approach versus a paternalistic, I told you to do this, so do it approach. You know, um, a lot of, of folks in both dental and medical fields talk to me and they describe their patients um, as acting like adolescents where they don't, they don't listen and they go, yeah, 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 but they don't actually do what they agreed on. Well, I don't blame the patients. I, I think, well, how did you come across as a parent? Yeah. Because what adolescents are doing with that maneuver is basically saying the way I can equalize the power here is I can dial back my awareness of you. I just won't be particularly aware of what you're doing. And you really can't make me more aware. So all of a sudden I balance power. Sure, you can be the big powerful person. Sure, you can know best. Sure, you can say these things. But if I'm a teenager, most of us learned to, to dial down that awareness so we could feel like we were back in control of something. Hmm. Now, it's a pretty dysfunctional way to do it. 
particularly if you're an adult and you're a patient and you're in a, you know, coordinating treatment, but it still happens. If, if, if the treatment provider comes on too dominant, too strong, you know, you end up with an adolescent acting 45 year old patient who says, uh, I can't challenge this person's authority, but I can just dial back my awareness and get out of here. So we've talked about that power <laughs> dynamic a bit before in previous episodes. And so let's talk about it in this context of trying to create, if, if you're the doctor, I think it's your responsibility to be aware that there is immediately a a power mismatch when you're in the office. Um, the way that from it's physically set up in most places to the the patient being in the chair in the dental chair and oftentimes reclined at, at some to some degree. You are in a chair. You're elevated above them typically, and either sitting next to them or behind them, I'm a kind of assuming worst case scenario here, you're talking to them upside down. And so you're this dominant figure that is now, even if you're trying to have a, a collaborative conversation, you have to overcome this physical dynamic and historical for most people problem of the doctors here. And that's power. And so for us to expect anything different than somebody just being agreeable, I think would be a little silly of us. And part of that defense mechanism of agreeableness in that moment is people begin to change their communication. I don't know about you, but when I've been confronted with an authority figure that that has important decisions to make about me, I start filtering my communication with them. I'm not telling them everything. I'm, I'm certainly not telling them, you know, how I'm feeling about this relationship. I may hide certain details. Uh, it, I, I, again, I see it all the time where you know, a dentist will say, well, how does that feel? And the person says, fine. They don't really mean fine. They really mean I'm annoyed that you have your fingers in my mouth and you're going to push a needle in my gums. I mean, you know, but nobody says that. Well, mm -hmm. not to say that because you start to filter the communication with this powerful person. So part of communication fail is intentional, which is I'm not going to tell you some things so I can control this relationship hmm. because you may be powerful, but you are driven by data. And if I take control of the data you get, I've got some control back in this relationship. I'm kind of running through my head examples of situations where patients have been in the chair and I, I can realize I've made that mistake. And I think patients have responded in that way that you describe. And I think another tactic that they likely do unknowingly is that they, they get defensive. They, they um, are more, you know, they puff up, they're tough, they're, they're more reactive in a negative way. And it, it's also 
what I'm learning from you is likely a response to this power mismatch. They're trying to get some of the power back. Humans are very, very sensitive to power mismatches. And so a lot of things that are uh, fails or the communication changes suddenly is really an attempt to rebalance that that power imbalance, which, by the way, if you, you ask a patient, are you feeling there's a power imbalance? A whole bunch of them would know. It's it, but it's but it's in the operating system of human beings. Um, we are basically pack animals, not herd animals. There's a hierarchy. We know what it is. Mm. We feel what it is. We may not know what it is, but we feel what it is. <clears throat> and we're constantly trying to figure a good place in that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> while we're on that topic, let's let's talk about maybe a an option or two to help it. So one would be what I always tried to do uh, was set people up, make sure that I was on their level or even below them uh, in height. And I would do some intentional mirroring of their physical posture. And my thought being based on some of the reading I've done is that that can help to diffuse a challenging power dynamic and bring it more equal. And I'll, I'll add a little bit of inner game here while you're doing that is relax and you get in the moment. If we want other people to be in the moment, we have to lead. We have to. Okay. Cause if you're thinking about the next operatory over, Or even if you're thinking about that patient and you're saying to yourself, I really hope they go for this because they really need it. And if they do this, then I'll be able to do this other thing. And, you know, how do I want to handle this? And they need to agree because I've got to get this going. They can see it in your eyes. Mm -hmm. But if you're really there, you you relax and it's, it is just about talking to the patient Uh, for a minute or two, again, not, not long drawn out. It's more about the intensity of the moment than the length of time. Mm. If you can relax and be fully present for two minutes, most patients experience that presence uh, as as being very fulfilling, even if it's only two, three minutes long. Mm -hmm. A distracted doctor can spend 12 minutes. Certainly I've seen MDs spend 10 to 12 minutes and, and, you know, Later, the patient doesn't remember their name. Yeah. Because it was all a little bit of attention over 15 minutes as opposed to absolute attention. Yeah. For three minutes or five minutes. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, I can reflect back on situations where I thought I was doing a good job at that. And when everything was said and done, that the assistant came up to me and said, yeah, um, Betty just mentioned that you seemed like you were in a hurry. <laughs> like, oh, oops, that was noticeable, huh? And uh, it gets it gets partly to that mindful idea. It gets to the the attention that we're putting in that chair versus the other two or three chairs that are rolling, and the day of the week and what else is going on. It can be a hard balance, but one I think that 
it is important that we strive for if we want to improve those communication circumstances. And it's a place to start if there's some real problems with patient acceptance. It's, well, maybe what I'm transmitting is I don't have time for them. <laughs> and the, the, the angry patients will not want to be treated that way. But even the more compliant patients don't want to bother the doctor with more information. And so they'll cut down the communication because he's very busy. I don't want to bother him. And and they'll agree to things that they don't really think through because, well, I don't want to bother the doctor. He's very busy. So it's it's not just some sort of angry patient that's the problem or demanding patient. It can be your very, very compliant patients. Good point. Uh, I'm going to take that suggestion now. I'm going to call that suggestion I gave about setting the patient up and being at their level or below. I'm going to call that a uh, like entry level uh, option. And now to go to the advanced level, I'm going to say that we take the patient out of the operatory and we have a different location to have the conversations. Uh, the power of place can be impactful for people. And so that operatory for a lot of people creates a level of stress that does make it hard for them to give their full attention, to be fully open. And so by taking them out of that operatory and going into a consult room, an office, even if it's empty, the waiting room can be a much more uh, conducive place to having a deeper conversation. And then having the conversation be more than just a, here's what's wrong with you. And spending some time getting to know the person, what is it they're there for, what's their history. And this is where time does matter. And I think that it's great if that can be the doctor, but even if the doctor is collaborating with an assistant, a health relationship coordinator, a treatment coordinator, an admin, whichever role that happens to be, can be hugely valuable in getting patients to feel comfortable, to open up, and to a point you just made, even improve treatment acceptance. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You know, as you were talking about that, I realized that... Um... The mechanic I take my car to is brilliant at that. Really? Oh, yeah. I bring in my car. He checks it for something. There's work that needs to be done. One of the first things out of out of his mouth isn't like shake the head. Your front end needs, you know, a total, total rebuild. No, he, I have an older car and he'll start with, you know, that is such a good car and you've taken really great care of it. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it could certainly run on for years. And, you know, I noticed that the tires are great. It handles great. I think the brakes are spot on. We just need to get the, a couple of things on the front end to put this thing really right back in shape. And I, yeah, is it a bit of a sales technique? Maybe, but I also know that he genuinely does like my car. He drives one very similar. So it's like, yeah. And, and it's kind of like, yeah, man, this is a good car. And I wonder what would happen if Dennis did that or health relationship coordinators did that in the treatment room. Instead mm -hmm. of saying, man, your mouth is a mess. 
and and you need a new front end. What if they said, you know, you, you've got a lot of things going for your dental health. You've got a lot of things going for your physical health. You know, you, uh, you're, I've heard you're a runner and it's clear that you're taking care of yourself. And, um, you know, it looks like you eat right. And you've been, you've been really following the hygienist recommendations. Um, your mouth is looking good. We've got a couple of areas of concern that we could m help move those to be, you know, as good as the rest of your mouth. It's kind of a different, please don't, somebody take this as a script. Um, unless you're a car mechanic, it works pretty well if you're a car mechanic. But uh, but just that idea of, you know, giving them a context of a larger life and a better life and and a, and dental health as a whole, uh, and that you see that and notice that and value that. I think there's a lot of value in that, and I'm gonna bring that around to stuff I've learned through some physical therapists that I follow on social media that they really don't like that we've created a culture of people feeling like they're fragile and that they have to be careful about every step they take, mm -hmm. about everything they pick up. They you, Oh, if you don't squat down and pick that thing up just right, you're going to blow your back out and you're going to, twist your knee if you don't watch every single step you take. So we've created a problem of people feeling like they're fragile when really we are tremendously adaptive and strong creatures. And I think the same could be same for the same could be said for the mouth that even if there are some problem areas, there are things that are holding up in a otherwise toxic environment that should be celebrated and to be able to celebrate those things with people i think can be really valuable in bringing that person along on that journey of of trying to get a little bit better and letting them know you are strong you are worthy you are good and we can even be a little better yeah that part of communication and successful communication with patients is picking your topics and putting the topics in the right order. And some of that can be habitual. Um, I mean, what, what if patients knew that you always noticed the good things about their health and their dental health? Uh, and then they just relied on that. Just, just that notice that, no, he, he looks for that or, or she always notices that, you know what what i'm doing right uh, with my self care or you know, there's a real affirmation in that that opens up the gates to communication a lot more um then patients want to tell you about what's going on in in their mouth because it's done from a place of acceptance and validation and strength that you are taking care of yourself you 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 do have a foundation to build on not right with every patient there. I'm sure there are a few that come in and it's like a disaster area. But I would suggest that even the patient that comes in, goes through uh, an exam, they walked into the office. They went through the exam. Something good is going on. They're not sitting at home eating bonbons and waiting for their teeth to rot out. They actually came. They actually participated. Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes it's like, I don't know about patient acceptance. They've already accepted. They walked through the, they made an appointment. They walked through the door. It's a several step process that they had to, had to accept and validate. And they have validated a whole bunch of small processes before you ever speak to them. Mm -hmm. What about those? Hey, tune in next time to see where this conversation goes. Sorry to cut you off. If you want to know more about some of that conversation around power and how relationships and interactions and relationships influence power, check out the book called Helping by Edgar Schein. It's a good one that gets into some of that. All right, tune in next time as we continue on this conversation. Thanks for listening.